It's Thursday, September 6th, and this is The Daily Dive. It started off as a feel-good story about a good Samaritan and has turned into a bitter fight over money. Homeless man Johnny Bobbitt helped out Kate McClure when she was stranded without gas on the interstate in Philadelphia. As a way to repay the favor, she set up a GoFundMe page and raised over $400,000 for him. Well now, all the money is gone and Bobbitt is accusing McClure and her boyfriend of spending all the money. Lauren Strapagil, reporter for BuzzFeed, joins us to talk about what happened to all this donated cash. Next, as a new book about the Trump administration is ready for release, the White House is ramping up the attacks on famed journalist Bob Woodward and trying to discredit the book as nothing but lies. The book paints a picture of chaos and division in the West Wing, but Bob Woodward's credibility is tough to fight. Brian Bender, national security reporter for Politico, joins us for all the latest trash talking and what it all means. Finally, as the average age in developed economies will keep rising in the coming years, One of the next big economic disruptions may be in anti-aging medicines. The new boom could be in drugs that slow, reverse, or prevent age-related diseases. Sam Baker, healthcare editor for Axios, joins us to discuss what this could mean for the future and about a new drug hitting clinical trials. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He is a self-described gambling addict. I think it's pretty hypocritical for you to tell me I can't manage my money because I might spend it on drugs. And you're doing the same thing. I didn't want to be pressuring to get a lawyer or do anything because I didn't want to appear ungrateful. In the beginning, it was a joke, like they were like my parent. But the joke stops being funny after a while. Joining us now is Lauren Strapagil, reporter for BuzzFeed News. So we're going to be talking about this story. It started off as a feel-good story about a homeless veteran, a good Samaritan, and turned into this story of lies, stolen money, possibly. It's gone viral all over the place. So we're talking about a named, a, a homeless veteran named Johnny Bobbitt, and he helped a woman out. She set up a GoFundMe page for him, raised over $400,000 from over 14,000 people, and now there's accusations that the money's all gone and Johnny Bobbitt hasn't gotten the money he is deserved. What do we know about this story, Lauren? So this actually started last November. This woman named Kate McClure, she's from New Jersey, but she got stranded on a highway without gas outside of Philadelphia. And this guy, Johnny Bobbitt, apparently spent his last 20 bucks to get her some gas so she could get on her way. Now, Kate and her boyfriend, Mark D'Amico, struck up a relationship with Johnny. Ended up creating a GoFundMe campaign to get him off the streets, to get him a vehicle and a home and some money so he can have a better life, which sounds like a very nice thing. And it went viral at the time. And now it's all kind of gone wayside because Johnny is saying that the money owed to him is now gone. They raised over $400,000. The fight is over about $200,000 of it, they say, that there was actually a judge that ordered them to put it into another account so that he can get access to it. And the lawyers for Johnny Bobbitt are saying now that all that money is gone. And GoFundMe just placed $20,000 into an account for Johnny so that he can have some money while this whole court proceeding goes goes through. Yeah, there's been a dispute about how much money is actually missing. So the couple says they spent about 200 grand on Johnny. Johnny's saying he got maybe 75k worth of stuff. We do know that he definitely got a car and a camper, which has since been sold. And he is living back on the streets in Philadelphia. So we don't know how much money there's actually supposed to be left, but whatever the amount is, it's gone. And Johnny's lawyer says that the money that was supposed to be moved to account just simply doesn't exist. We don't know where it is. 
I mean, it's such a, a crazy story. And it's one of those things that I've always been concerned about with GoFundMe campaigns and donating to these things is where does the money go? Who's actually in charge of it? And these things go viral. The story was so great. They went on to Good Morning America and BBC newspapers all over the place. They were just on the Today Show to defend themselves over this the other day. And, you know, you don't know where this is going. But GoFundMe does have this uh, GoFundMe guarantee that where they're going to help get the money go where it needs to go. But this is such a convoluted story. It's, you know, who owns it and, and where does it all go? Yeah, it really has to go through the court system right now. I mean, GoFundMe has a guarantee where if something goes awry, they say they'll donate the money themselves. But of course, it's in their best interest for this to be settled in the court. So they don't, they're not the ones that are going to be at $200,000 or more. Let's get into a little bit of the fight between the couple, Kate McClure and her boyfriend, Mark D'Amico and Johnny Bobbitt. They said that they didn't want to give him a lot of the money because they were afraid that he was going to use it on drugs. And he has admitted that the pull of drugs was very strong and he has since been using drugs again. So they wanted to keep some of the money away from him and just give it out to him slowly. As you said, they bought him a camper. He was living on their property for some time, but I guess he was just asking for too much. They didn't want to give him a lot of the money. He's accused them of squandering it on vacations and buying a new car. So what happened with their relationship? Yeah, it seems like something went very sour. I remember in one interview, Johnny was saying he felt like a kid asking his parents for an allowance. I mean, they did say on the GoFundMe page, they're going to set up trust accounts that Johnny would have access to so he could go find a job. He'd still have some money to keep him going. It seems like those trusts didn't actually happen. And there are all these accusations that this couple went and spent the money on themselves on trips or on luxury goods or on gambling. I've not seen proof of it. The local ABC station has been tracking their social media and has seen them on you know, these lavish trips and with luxury goods. We don't know if that's where the money went. Again, the house come out in the courts, but we do know the money is kind of, just kind of gone for now. And yeah, Johnny is apparently living back on the street. He does have substance abuse issues, apparently. I think the whole thing is just kind of sad, and it does show you that when you see these viral GoFundMe campaigns, you don't truly know what's the real story, who are the people actually taking in this money. As a person who submits to donates to some of these campaigns, I would be be very concerned about where the money is and and be wary of doing it in the future. Not everybody is being honest on both sides. I mean, the couple, Mark D'Amico even said he took like $500 to use it on gambling, but he paid it right back with winnings. If you're being a, a real good steward of this money for a supposed good cause, you shouldn't even be taking $500 to gamble in the first place. So it's just such a weird story. And the fight is going to be going on so that they can get his money back. Yeah, and frankly, unless you're a financial advisor or have one on retainer, you probably shouldn't be dealing with hundreds of thousands right. of dollars. It's a, it's a very strange position to be in, even for people who are handling it honestly. That's one of the other things that's weird about this story is that in the GoFundMe page that they put there, they wanted to give him a second chance at life. You know, they wanted to set him up with a house and a lawyer and a financial advisor so he would never be homeless and have to go through this problem again. They're saying that they were holding the money back until he gets a job and gets off drugs. And those weren't necessarily original stipulations in the GoFundMe campaign. So why are they the ones responsible for it? People were donating for him, for Johnny Bobbitt. It's such a crazy story. For someone who's living on the street and is using drugs and has the kind of life that this man has, it's going to take more than just money to turn his life around. And I think 
that needed to be considered as well. So yeah, I feel, I forgot, I kind of feel bad for just this whole thing, really. Right. Well, we'll see how the process goes and we'll see if uh, Johnny Bobbitt ends up getting his money over this. Lauren Strapagill, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The book is a work of fiction. If you look at it, it was put out to interfere, in my opinion, at this time with the Kavanaugh hearings, which I don't think it's done. We do run a strong White House, there's no question about it, and we are doing things that nobody else has ever been able to do, and our country is stronger now than it's ever been. Joining us now is Brian Bender, national security reporter at Politico. We're going to be talking about Bob Woodward's new book called Fear. Excerpts have been released and the president in the White House and some cabinet members have started to react to it. Let's start off real quick with some of the more fun quotes out of the book. What do we hear about what is going on at the White House? There's no doubt the headlines are focusing on some of the private snickering that goes on behind the president's back on the part of some of his top aides. That's not necessarily new, but there's more of it in this book. It's more deeply reported, and it includes people that we have not heard of before being so critical of the president, like Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. Often the insults are about the president's intelligence or his lack of it or lack of curiosity, inability to pay attention, inability to grasp complicated issues, and then unwillingness to learn. One of the quotes that struck me the most was attributed to Secretary Mattis. He's been very careful about not appearing to criticize the president. He's the one guy who's had a lot of influence with President Trump, and I think he's trying to keep that. But he's quoted in the book as basically saying the president has an intelligence level of a fifth or sixth grader. He denies saying that, right. um, we should point out. He did denies using those words, which makes me think that maybe he said something akin to that, but didn't say exactly as it was reported in the book. But again, this is a narrative we've heard before. I think Bob Woodward has come at it in a somewhat dispassionate, very deeply reported way where he talked to dozens of the key players for hours and hours. You know, I think it's also important to point out that the book itself has got this stuff in it, but it's about a lot more than that. It really is the first draft of history of the Trump presidency. He goes through a lot of the decision making, you know, how the president came to pull out of the climate treaty, how the president has dealt with North Korea. So I think when people actually read the book when it comes out next week, yes, these quotes attributed to people criticizing the president will, will certainly be interesting to read and what's shocking, but it's more than that. And it's these quotes that always get that, uh, you know, they're juicy and, you know, you want to know the palace intrigue, what's going on behind the scenes. We've all seen episodes of Veep and how crazy they go on that show. And that's a comedy show. But these books kind of lend to that a little bit. Like, you know, some of these crazy shenanigans are going on. And the problem that the White House has with Bob Woodward, as you were kind of alluding to, is that he's a classic journalist. He doesn't have many credibility issues that, let's say, Michael Wolff had with his previous book. You know, they were able to poke holes through that all over the place. Omarosa, she's kind of a villain in the media sense. People were able to poke holes through that stuff. But Bob Woodward is different and he backs it up. He supposedly has a lot of audio tapes to back up things that he puts in his book as well. But, you know, I think the bigger takeaway, especially since this is Bob Woodward and not a former Trump official trying to get revenge or make a ton of money on a bestseller, is this portrayal of a White House that is wholly dysfunctional. 
I mean, the book, I think, is called Fear for a Reason, which is alluding to some of the president's top advisors being afraid of him, being afraid of what he will do, being afraid of how do we navigate him. The fact that his economic advisor, Gary Cohn at the time, reportedly, as Woodward lays out, actually is taking things off of the president's desk because he's worried that the president is going to go off and, in this case, pull out of NAFTA trade agreement and, you know, upend the world economy. You know, the president would rail against people for undermining him and things like that. But this, these are the, some of his closest allies here in the White House, and they're doing this stuff. It even goes back to the way um, Bob Woodward and the interaction with Kellyanne Conway when he was trying to get Trump to make comments for the book. And she said, hey, you know, I ran it up the right, the proper channels. It got you know, rejected. These people are not putting it all before the president. In every other presidency that Bob Woodward has covered, and there's been many of them, in fact, I think every one since Nixon and Watergate, there's a process for even this basic kind of thing where a journalist with real credibility, a historian, even more than a journalist, comes and says, hey, I want to interview the president. I'm doing a deep dive book on how the presidency is going. You think that that would get raised up the channels, but you know there are no channels at this White House. It's just the way the president has approached his style of leadership. The White House has pushed back on all of this uh, criticisms coming out in the book. And uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, you know, this is just the disgruntled ex-employees and things like that. Um, But where does this put us in the end? I mean, you know, the administration is doing well on the economy right now. Uh, It's booming. So where does the where do these books land? I I mean, his base is not going to listen or care about it. Uh, The media eats these things up. Uh, like I said, he's having certain amounts of success. Where do these things land? I mean, I think Bob Woodward gets a nice, a nice, you know, runaway bestseller, as he always does. Um, but, you know, in the bigger picture, I think you're probably right. It doesn't really move the needle one way or the other, other than the elections in November. I mean, every midterm election, most of them have always been a referendum on the president. And in most midterm elections, especially a one-term, the first-term president doesn't do that well. His party doesn't do that well. And, you know, despite what Trump says, he did not win in a landslide in 2016. He won, you know, comfortably in the Electoral College, but that's because he won a couple of key states pretty narrowly. And so I think in the end, what's really going to matter is where the American voters are and whether they double down and vote for the Republican Party this November to make sure they keep control of the Senate and the House and, and some of these governorships. And then, you know, of course, two years later is going to be the real test when Trump presumably runs for re-election. Um, but yeah, the, the book will come and go, and, and I'm sure there'll be more like it uh, about this palace intrigue. But, you know, the, the supporters of the president don't seem to be movable. The economy, as he said, is doing well. Uh, there's no major calamities on the horizon, um, hopefully. And so, you know, he may, you know, withstand this just like he's with so many other things that at least in our recent memory would have really had consequences to the president, but don't seem to stick to him. They called Reagan the Teflon president. I mean, they didn't even know what they meant by Teflon president until Trump. Brian Bender, national security reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Part of the reason that we're seeing Medicare spending grow at the rate that it's growing is because the baby boomers are aging into Medicare, that generation's getting older, and people now 
live longer than they used to. Joining us now is Sam Baker, healthcare editor for Axios. There's a new report out by City that was talking about disruptive innovations in tech and the healthcare industry. Specifically in the healthcare industry, there's a bunch of new anti-aging medicines that we might be seeing a little further down the road. You know, it's a huge market of about $200 billion dollars. And there's a lot of potential for not necessarily slowing down the aging process and making you younger. It's not a fountain of the youth thing, but really attacking some of those diseases that we get as we age. What do we know about this new report? These drugs, we should caution because I know this gets people really excited. This is all still very early in the process. It's not a lot of drugs and they are early in their clinical trials. But generally, the way that they would work if they turn out to work is several of them, at least, that are under development now or that are being researched now, which would effectively boost the body's immune system because one of the things that happens as you start to get older is, you know, you become more susceptible to the flu. You have a harder time fighting off infections, that sort of thing. So, you know, when when scientists now are talking about anti-aging, that's some of the stuff that they're talking about is sort of having the body's internal system stay stronger later in life and, and sort of be able to, to do more of the, the normal processes that they can do when we're younger. Yeah, and it has a lot of implications, not necessarily just for us living longer. I mean, these things could help out with future healthcare costs in the industry. Approximately 80% of older adults have at least one chronic disease. 77% of older adults have at least two so all this stuff, as you get older, puts more of a strain on the healthcare industry as well. So some of these anti-aging drugs and things that are down the pipeline would help reduce some of those costs. They could reduce some of those costs. They also could increase some of those costs. Part of the reason that we're seeing Medicare spending grow at the rate that it's growing is because the baby boomers are aging into Medicare. That generation is getting older and people now live longer than they used to. You know, if you have a chronic condition, something like cancer, for example, that's very expensive to treat, you're going to have for a long time. The longer you live, the longer bills pile up for right. whether it's cancer or diabetes or those sorts of things. But at the same time, yeah, you know, if your body's more able to fight off infections or uh, arthritis is another category that, that might be helped by some of these anti-aging drugs, which, you know, might cut down the number of knee replacement surgeries. So it's really a mixed bag here on what these would mean for healthcare costs. And I think we'll just sort of have to see how well these products end up working and, and exactly how they end up working. Yeah, to your point about the aging population, in, in 2016, there was about 50 million people in the U.S. who are 65 years and older by 2035, that they say that number is going to grow to 78 million. So the U.S. population is getting older and those bills are going to keep piling up. So tell us about one of these uh, drugs that is just going into some clinical trials on humans. It might be helping with osteoarthritis. Yeah, that's right. You know, arthritis is obviously very painful. It's something that once you have it, you you tend to be in pain for a long time. Obviously, it's very closely associated with aging. And that really gets to, to the sort of quality of life, healthcare costs, nexus that we're talking about there. You know, if you had something that made arthritis not as bad or delayed its onset or was even more helpful than that, obviously, that'd be a huge quality of life improvement that would sort of enable people to live a fuller do more with the longer life that we're all uh, likely to live. I think I mentioned knee surgeries, knee replacement surgeries earlier. That's actually the most common or one of the most common surgeries in the U.S. If fewer people are suffering from arthritis, you can see the number of those procedures and other sort of similar procedures shrink pretty dramatically. 
All right. Well, we'll see what these drugs hold the future of, see if they continue to disrupt the markets and help people. As you said, it can make some costs go down. A bunch of other costs might go up, depending on these drugs. Sam Baker, healthcare editor for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.